Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Stan Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I am lucky to be joined by two guests today, uh, one of which will join us uh, very, very, very soon, and that is 20-game winner in 1953, the pitcher Carl Erskine. But right now, first joining us is the author of Tearing Up the Pea Patch, the Brooklyn Dodgers, 1953, and that is Andy Mealy. How are you doing, Andy? I'm doing well, Sam. Thanks very much. I'm glad that uh, you and Carl can join me today, and I know that you talked uh, a lot about 53 with Carl. And it's going to be really, really fun to have both of you on the air. Now, it's really remarkable. I wanted to give you a little bit of a a tidbit about my day. I currently live on Carroll Street between Franklin and Washington. And I was reading your book at the laundromat at the corner of Carroll Street and Franklin Avenue, obviously, where you can (laughs) see the apartment buildings. So when you hear Carroll Street and Franklin Avenue, Andy, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, my God, Brooklyn, period. Because so many things, you know, no matter where you lived, some things just, just hit you. The Gowanus Canal, uh, uh, Carroll Street is one of them, President Street. That was going downtown. I, I guess you'd call that the, uh, uh, I don't know if it's part of Park Slope or uh, or, or uh, Carroll Gardens, but uh, that's that section. I come from a little further over. I was in a place they call it Kensington. Actually, it's a, right at the foot of Borough Park. And... Um, uh, you know, it was just I was I was on the opposite side of uh, Ebbets Field, but uh, right. you know it was it was it was uh, part of our neighborhood practically because everything was so close. You know, you went on a lot of strolls over to Ebbets Field, of course, during those years. Yeah, yeah, many times. Of course, as kids, we did that, and we did that, and we rode on the trolley car. Uh, but uh, you know that that's it started very early. Uh, mostly with your father. With me was my father. My father was a, a big fan. He was an old ball player, and he loved the Dodgers. And I guess that's how you get into it that way. And uh, he, you know, took me many, many times to games. And then it, you know, you, you just it just segues into your, your neighborhood friends. You know, the kids. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, they, you know what happened too. They did a lot of uh, uh, bonding with with the with the public. I guess that's part of the thing. You know, to uh, build up mm-hmm. tickets. But for kids, we used to go to the, I used to go to the 7 Precinct on Lawrence Street. It's the uh, uh, PAL, Police Athletic League. And they'd give us free tickets, free bleacher seats. And you go up there, you pick up tickets, and you, and you go to see a ball game for free. So that was part of the, you know, part of the growing up thing with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, of course. Now, before you put your author hat on, because you did write a book about 1953, um, Talk about 1953 in perspective uh, of just uh, living in the neighborhood. You know, obviously sometimes all these years blend together, but you honed in on that one specific year while, of course, also exploring and leading up, uh, you know, giving a little bit of the history of not only uh, the baseball uh, played by the Dodgers, but also Brooklyn and baseball together. Uh, yeah. So so when you think 1953, tell, tell me like uh, an average summer day for you in the borough of Brooklyn, in the city of Brooklyn in 1953? <laughs> well, I, th- I think uh, in, in the summertime in those years, I would have been about 14, I guess, in 53, and I was in high school. I went to Erasmus Hall High School, 
And in the summertime, I mean, we, we spent all our time playing ball. If it wasn't baseball, we'd be playing stickball in the street, stickball, punchball. It always started out that way. In the summer morning, you'd go outside, you'd, two or three of the fellows would come out, you'd start hit, playing a little game of uh, punchball or something. Then more of the guys would come out, and you'd, it, would, it would gravitate to a stickball game. And then we always had the... Uh, the, the uh, place to go to the luncheonette, the candy store, where uh, you'd have an egg cream, which was a standard thing. There was a, always a jukebox. And a lot of the games were played in the afternoon. So these places in those days, the first there used to be the radio. And then it segued into a, a, a little tiny black and white TV screen that uh, they would have behind the counter in, in the candy store. And in the afternoon, after you finished, or between games or something, we'd run over there and you'd... Uh, uh, you'd have your egg cream and you'd, you'd watch the Dodgers play. It was uh, it was just all part. And uh, you know uh, something that that strikes me funny as I think of it, uh, we had a, a luncheonette there, kind of a candy store luncheonette. Uh, a fellow called Walter Dahl ran the place. And in those days, the TV you'd have an antenna on the roof, and if you didn't, your reception wasn't good. You moved the antenna around till the reception was right. So we'd be over there, there'd be all the snow on the screen, and Walter would tell one, well, one of you guys go up on the roof. So one of the kids would go on the roof, another one would stand out in the street, <laughs> and as he turns the antenna, Walter would say, a little, no, no, a little more, a little more, and then you'd yell up to the guy on the roof, a little more, a little more. Okay, that's it, perfect. And that's what we did. And it happened three, four times during the course of a ball game. <laughs> but but those were pretty much uh, what, how we spent our summers as teenagers. And uh, what we did for uh, entertainment was uh, usually it meant uh, we'd wind up in the evening down at Coney Island someplace. Coney Island was was uh, bright and uh, exciting in those days. It was before it finally started falling apart and closing up. And uh, on the weekends, we played our baseball. Saturdays or Sundays, we played. For me, it was a place called the Parade Grounds, and we played a lot, a lot of baseball as kids. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of activity that, down there in those days. It was it was a big thing. Brooklyn was part of the Dodgers. The Dodgers were part of Brooklyn, and baseball was part of Brooklyn. I, I mean, the history is, you know, it practically grew up in Brooklyn. So that that's the way and it was. And on that note, on that note, uh, I'd like to bring on somebody who is completely ingrained in the, the Brooklyn lore, and and that is a twenty game winner in 1953, Mr. Carl Erskine. Carl, welcome. Hey, hello, Sam. Hi, buddy. Podcast. Hey, I, well, I was enjoying that. Uh, Sounded like my own kid days, the way you were describing that. <laughs> well, that's grown up that way. And it, you know, guys like you made our made our youth, you know? It's it's amazing. Carl, you know, I, was a, I was actually a youth myself. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Carl, a few years I, was older. Telling, I was just telling Andy that it's remarkable that uh, today I was at a laundromat at, a, at the corner of Carroll Street and Franklin Avenue, reading Andy's book about 1953, and, and I happen to live in an apartment between uh, Washington and Franklin, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the names of the streets around Ebbets Field. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, you, of course, lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at the time, but, but in terms of uh, when you hear Carroll Street and Franklin Avenue, what's the first thing that comes to mind, Carl? Yeah, well, you know, I didn't own a car when I came to Brooklyn. I was 21 years old. And uh, I was called up from Fort Worth, Texas, double A, and uh, I didn't own an automobile. And I had driven my dad's car a little bit, but uh, I really uh, hadn't driven much. And I must have had a license, but I didn't know much about driving. So when the ball club, when the guys on the ball club uh, 
few days into my first few days there, they said, "Don't you have a car?" No. Well, God, there's a dealer down here in Brooklyn, a Pontiac dealer. He'll give you a great deal. Well, I went down and actually bought my first car in Brooklyn, and then I had to learn to actually get around and be feel comfortable. So I I practiced on Ocean Avenue. I went up and down, way up and down Ocean Avenue. <laughs> so I got enough nerve to go out on the. Uh, uh, on the on the main roads out to El, to uh, Long Island, um, and um, so anyway, uh, I I kind of truthfully can say I've sort of grew up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, exactly. I'm street and, and, now. I knew Empire Boulevard. <laughs> I knew Bedford Avenue. Those right. are the two I knew the best. And Empire Boulevard onto Ocean Ocean Avenue, and, and right. uh, off you went driving. And yeah. uh, so so let's talk about 1953. And um, I'm going to start by asking you this question, Andy. And then uh, once he's done, Carl, I'd like you to uh, follow up. Um, the 19, you, you know, you were saying that the 1953 Dodgers are arguably the best National League team of all time. And so what I, I pose this question to you: What made them the best? National League uh, baseball team of all time, and what made them better than the eventual world champion 1955 Dodgers? And, Andy, go ahead. Well, I, I think compared to 55, it was just simply a matter of uh, uh, pretty much the same club, but uh, just two years older. And, uh, uh, you know, in 53, you have to go by the numbers. I mean, these guys were phenomenal. Uh, offensively, they led the league in almost every, every category. And that's not to overlook the defense. I mean, this was this was a heck of a defensive club. I mean, they had all-star fielders at every position. I mean, uh, guys like Hodges and Cox were the best in baseball at their position alone. And how could you how could you go wrong with Snyder and Ferrillo in the outfield? It was a, such a tremendous ball club. And of course, uh, you know, the, the Dodgers, the, the pitching was always a, a little bit weak with the Dodgers. They could have used another starting pitcher or two, uh, or, but when you look at it, Carl won 20 games, but you had guys like uh, Maya was 15-5, and five, uh, Billy Lowe's was, what, 14-7 and seven or something, so you had a lot of guys with, uh, with winning records, even though they, uh, they didn't win 20 games. But, uh, and then, of course, in the bullpen, you had Labine uh, kind of replacing Black was a big thing, so it, it was just a tremendous ball club, and I think all things said and done, it, it just comes out to me to be the best. I, I don't see anybody who could do anything that was better. They had five 300 hitters in the lineup. You had uh, uh, three guys with 100 RBIs, but they were five with over 90 RBIs. Uh, you know, it's, it, was, it was tough to beat. And like I said, they, they didn't make errors. They were an exceptional defensive team, and they could do everything, hit and run, bunt, steal. They, they, they led in stolen bases also. They led the league. Pretty terrific team. Yeah, well, I don't know, Andy. After that rundown, it's hard to to add anything to it, except I can confirm what you said as a player and as a pitcher. Uh, if you want to pitch for a team and you had your ideal pick of a team, you'd pick a team that could score runs, number one. Then you'd pick a team who could play defense, number two. A pitcher's got to have both. And I can tell you, my record would not be anywhere close to what it has been if I'd played with a team with less uh, power, less uh, consistency, defense, the whole thing. And then we had uh, we had a spirit on that team. Uh, we had something to prove, and it was tough to prove it because 
we were playing against some pretty good teams in the Giants. And, of course, I think the 53 Yankees could be maybe the – I didn't, didn't see the 27 Yankees, but that always held out to be the best team ever. I think the 53 Yankees has to rank pretty high in all-time uh, best teams. And I'm not sure who ranks that or who maybe will rank it, but uh, there was a whole lineup. For, I think everybody in the lineup with the Yankees in, the, in 53 hit over 300, maybe except the pitcher's position and Rizzuto, who probably hit about 280. But, uh, but those, those teams were classic. And our centerpiece, of course, was Jackie. And he made us believe we could win. I think the Dodgers over time had some great teams. But they only won the National League Championship uh, now and then. But with Jackie on the squad, that decade, you know, we won the pennant in 47 before I got there, but uh, in 48. And, but 47, uh, again, 49, 52, 53, 55, 56, uh, all in that decade. And uh, that stretch, even though we could have won another couple of uh, pennants because we got beat – and the Thompson home run, and we got beat by uh, the Phillies in extra innings on the final day uh, when Sisler hit a three-run homer. So uh, we were contending every year, and uh, I have to echo everything you said about the stats on the on the team, and, uh, and I was one lucky guy to pitch for that team. And, you know, we didn't have Newcomb uh, in 53, 52 or 53. I think the 52 team was uh, also outstanding. Uh, went seven games in the World Series and got beat, and went six games in '53. But um, I, that uh, the comparison to '55 is interesting. Uh, pitching was always uh, a little shaky for us, but we did have Preacher Rowe, uh, who was an outstanding pitcher uh, percentage-wise. Preacher always was a winner, uh, and he taught the young pitchers a lot. We had a lot of hard-throwing young guys in the minors, and uh, they switch them back and forth a lot. Just uh, you know, I was up and down twice, and then uh, we had guys like Barney could throw hard and uh, just just a lot of hard-throwing young guys. Uh, but there was only a few really pitchers on on the squads I was on. A preacher was the uh, – he was the ultimate pitcher. He he could actually throw – he could actually miss a plate if he wanted to. The rest of us <laughs> couldn't – we couldn't hardly find it. But preacher would actually purposely miss one. But, yeah, anyway, uh, no argument about uh, the quality of that team. The only thing, it's sort of like uh, Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning is going to be measured as one of the greatest uh, quarterbacks ever. But there will be a common butt in there. He only won one Super Bowl (laughs) so far. And I think that's the way with the uh, 53 Dodgers. Yeah, they were great, but they didn't win win the whole thing. And and the team in 55 – uh, we had a couple surprises. Uh, two young pitchers uh, that had uh, one was eight and nine during the regular season. That was Padres. He wins two complete game uh, final shutout in the, in the seventh game. And Roger Craig was a rookie. He won a he won the third game I think or fourth uh, fifth game one game in the middle. Roger Craig pitched a complete game. He was a rookie. Well, that was a big surprise. Newcomb, who had won. What Newcomb had, was a strong pitcher. Won, he won 27 games, I think, in '56, but uh, couldn't win in the series. And uh, I had several starts in the series. And I only won two complete games uh, in the series myself. But um, so the pitching was was probably the 
um, Achilles' heel of us. And when we faced the Yankees uh, with Reynolds and, uh, and Rashi, Lopat, uh, and then they had other uh, pitchers too. Johnny Cux shut us out in the seventh game in '56, which was that was off the wall. Nobody shut us out at Evans Field, especially. And I wouldn't want to demean uh, Johnny Cux, who's a fine pitcher. But you wouldn't expect Johnny Cux to be the one. If Reynolds had done it, or Rashi, you'd say, oh, sure. But how could we let uh, Johnny Cux shut us out uh, in the seventh game? Or we would have been back-to-back uh, World Series champions. <laughs> so, anyway, there's a lot of buts and ifs. And, but you know what? That makes baseball great because there's no guarantee when you go to the post, I don't care what your record is, what you did yesterday, uh, you got to do it again today. And... So that's what happened in 55. I did pitch the opening game in 55 and won. So I got the first win. Padres got the last. And I was always proud of that because we were never tied uh, in 53, excuse me, 55. Uh, We won wire to wire. And not too many teams can do that. That is very true. That is very true. And um, your manager in 53, Charlie Dresden, uh, seems like a polarizing figure. Uh, I'll, I'll start with you, Carl, since you uh, were managed by this, by this gentleman, uh, and then Andy, I will I will let you take over uh, thereafter. I think uh, something that's unwritten about Charlie Dresson was this: it was unpublished, un, uh, uh, kind of unknown outside of being on the club itself. But you know, before uh, Dresson became manager. Uh, there was an intern, intern manager was uh, Bert Schotten, but Leo DeRocher was the was the regular manager up until mid year in '48, I think. Just he wanted me to come up. They kept trying to get Ricky to bring me up, but he, Ricky said he's too young. He's only had one year in the minors. I'm not going to bring him up. He's too young. But I was winning games in Fort Worth, Texas, and Leo was my champion. He he was wanting me to come up big time. But then there was the problems in the front office. Front anyway. He he gets fired, as I remember, he got fired, and he turns out to be the manager of the Giants. Well, when Dressen came to re- in 1951, when Dressen came, um, he was paranoid about beating Leo because he'd been Leo's uh, assistant coach or top coach, and he always, I think, kind of seethed inside. Charlie did. I like Charlie. I played for him. He helped me a lot, and I appreciated Charlie. But I always thought he went overboard in his paranoia about beating Leo. And there's a lot of things I could tell you about in the clubhouse about Charlie being uh, paranoid. It reminded me of the, uh, uh, the the movie with Humphrey Bogart uh, when he was uh, – uh, what was the name of that movie? <laughs> All of a sudden I missed it. Anyway, it was, he was paranoid. And uh, I think it caused him to make some unusual decisions trying to beat Leo. And um, and so he's a good baseball man. He was a lot like Leo. He's a little bit of a gambler, but he was solid. He he made good he made good moves. He knew the game. But uh, if there was one flaw in Dressen for me as a as a and he got the best out of me was that he he really let his uh, anxieties, his uh, his uh, whatever was going on in his makeup, that that he was just overboard about beating Leo, and uh, the story that's not been told often in the clubhouse 
when in '51 in May uh, the Giants were uh, were losing and we had gotten off to a decent start. And when the Giants came to play us at Evans Field, we swept the series three games. And Dressen was all over the clubhouse. He was higher than a kite. He was so elated that that he, he we swept Leo, and they had lost 11 straight. And so this is the incident when between the two clubhouses was one door between the visiting clubhouse and Evans Field uh, Dodger clubhouse, and that door was never locked because guys who got traded or uh, friends on the other club. When they'd come to town, they'd come through the door, coming over, visit in the clubhouse uh, to see their former teammates or whatever. So that door was a regular door, just like a door in a house, and it was never locked. So on the day we beat the Giants for their 11th loss, Dressen was just up the wall. And he came bound by the lockers saying, come on, come on, come on back, come on back and sing to Leo. Come on, we're going to go sing to Leo. And so I, I said, no, I, I don't think so. And Polika was next to me and Branca and along with the pitcher's row. And uh, they, Charlie was dragging, trying to get anybody to come back to sing through the door. Uh, <laughs> the Giants are dead. The Giants are dead. Well, uh, he did go back and sing through the door. And I thought when Thompson hit the home run for the shuttered around the world, I mean, was that some kind of poetic payback? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was weird to know that happened in the clubhouse, and then to have this finale take place, which is a piece of uh, rich piece of baseball history for the Giants to come, who cheated to get there, but they still got there. <laughs> <laughs> they still got there. Well, I, I I remember I was reading something that said that um, he was an immaculate uh, uh, call stealer, present. Uh, not not in terms of telescope, but but um, it was in Andy's yeah. book that that he he was really good at stealing signs. Well, I think legitimately he he taught he taught us a lot about the game on the bench. He didn't want anybody to sleep on the bench, so he had a system for us to to try to steal signs legitimately. I mean, one of his techniques was that uh, okay, a guy's at the plate and uh, the coach at third base. Is historically gave the signs, and, and in fact, in those years, it was the manager usually who coached third, mm. and who would give the sign. Well, the uh, Charlie would say he'd take two guys, two pitchers that weren't in the game. Say, all right, now you watch the hitter, and you tell the other guy you watch the you watch the coach, you watch the manager, and the one guy would say he's looking, he's looking, he's looked away. Well, what he's saying was when he keep, do that often enough. You see the coach going through all the signs. Well, the hitter is looking, looking, then the hitter looks away. Well, the coach is still giving signs. He's still doing it. But you can kind of begin to zero in on what the last sign was and what did the hitter do. Did he bunt or did he hit and run or what did he do? And that's the way you steal a sign. Well, Charlie taught the guys on the bench, don't, hey, don't you guys be telling jokes and kidding around over it. I want you to watch this. And so he would try to keep guys alert. He, Charlie was sharp. He was a, a good manager. Uh, but he wanted to make all the decisions. Uh, Charlie did not listen to his coaches. You know, another interesting thing about baseball is that we did not have pitchers who were pitching coaches. I had four pitching coaches in my career with the Dodgers. They were all catchers. 
it was typical, traditional in those days, that the catcher who handled the pitcher would be the one to coach the pitchers. But he couldn't do that, you know. I had uh, Clyde Sukaforth, one of the great guys in baseball. He was a catcher, and he was great with pitchers, but he had no idea what it was like to stand on the mound three and two and the bases loaded. Only a pitcher could help another pitcher. So we would talk to the older pitchers. I mentioned Preacher Rowe. The true pitching coaches in my era were the older pitchers. Hugh Casey was, uh, was what there when I got there. Gave me some great advice when I was a kid. But the catchers who were pitching coaches, uh, I can name Suka Ford, later Joe Becker, uh, Bobby Bragan, were all catchers who were my pitching coaches. But they couldn't help you how to rotate a curveball or, or how to release uh, an off-speed pitch. They couldn't do any of that. So only when uh, middle 50s, early 50s, Jim Turner of the Yankees was a former pitcher. He was one of the early, maybe one of the first pitchers to be put on the staff to handle pitchers. Well, two classic examples that he did. Uh, he got two pitchers, hard-throwing guys from Baltimore, Turley and uh, Larson, both wild, uh, unpolished pitchers. And he introduced the, the no windup. That's where the no windup came from. Just come to the belt, push off, and pitch. And he, he got both those pitchers, uh, made them good pitchers. Now, no catcher could probably ever coach a pitcher to change his style like that. Well, that changed the style of pitching, period. You don't see any big windups anymore. And that came from a pitcher who was a coach. Now, we got a pitching coach in 53 or so. It was Ted Lyons. Now, Ted Lyons was an American League pitcher, had an outstanding record. I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, but I'm not sure. I think he went over 200 games. Anyway, Ted Lyons came to me. He's a very nice gentleman. After he'd been on the club about three or four months, he said, I think I'll just pack up and go home. I said, what are you talking about? Well, Dresden doesn't, he didn't want to talk to me. Uh, he didn't want me to tell him anything about the pitchers. And I said, well, give him time. This is something new. But Charlie was a guy that said, I'll make the, I'll call the shots. In fact, the guys used to kid about Charlie. Uh, they'd sing a song, I, 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 because Charlie would say, look, yeah. we're behind. You guys hold them, and I'll think of something. <laughs> that was kind of a funny deal. But, but Charlie was a one-man operator, and that's the way the old managers used to be. I think Leo was too. Um, but he surrounded himself with good Good, good coaches, but he, he wouldn't really necessarily take their advice. Uh, Austin was a different cat. He depended on his, his coaches, and he surrounded himself with uh, guys who had managed and uh, who were uh, who were dependable baseball guys, but uh, but not Dressen or Leo. Yeah, that's that. That was actually going to be my next question. Uh, you know, what what was the difference uh, between uh, Alston? So, uh, I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, we're we're winding down uh, to the last two minutes of the half hour, but if it's all right with you guys, I'd like to extend it just uh, maybe five or ten minutes or so. Uh, what what is, what's uh, your deal, Carl? Yeah, that's good. That'd be fine. Okay, cool. How about you, Andy? Yeah, I'm okay. A few minutes. Okay, great. So if we, for the people who are listening live, we only have about two and a half minutes left. Um, so I'll pose this hypothetical question for you before asking you some new questions in the archive section uh, in the next five to ten minutes. Um, 
I'll I'll start with you, Andy, and I'm I'm sure that I know where your allegiances lie, but you were talking about uh, you know the the arguably the greatest National League team of all time. So here's a hypothetical, and we all love playing it in the world of baseball. Uh, who would win in a seven-game series? Uh, and, and you can answer this after, Carl. Uh, the 1953 Brooklyn Dodgers or the 1986 New York Mets? You're asking my opinion. <laughs> yes. Well, I, nobody can beat the Dodgers. And the reason, you know, you got to understand something, a seven-game series, that's why I, I played down the World Series. And they didn't win the World Series in 53. But uh, you, I play it down because – uh, it's a short series, and it's baseball. And often uh, pitching, a pitching performance, especially if it goes seven games, winds up being the turning point. So while I think the, 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 the 53 Dodgers were certainly superior to the 86 Mets, I mean, who knows what would happen in a short series. I, I really couldn't predict it. Because <laughs> I, I, I know what hat I'd be wearing, but, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Carl. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the typical baseball Talk about what if and if you pitch it, you know that wouldn't have been a home run in Evans Field. That would have been a home run. I mean, that's baseball. If you'd hit the home, that home run Thompson hit wouldn't have gone out of any other ballpark in the world. But the yeah. anyway, so you can play all these games. No, I'll tell you what. A fan has kind of straightened me out one time. I'm an old timer, so I'm very cautious about criticizing the game uh, after I got out of it. And I could I could talk about the strike zones too small and all that stuff, but uh, I don't want to do that. What I what this fan said to me was, Carl, what's the difference between trying to compare teams of the 27s or the 60s or the 50s? What's the use of comparing them? When you go to a major league game, you see world-class players. The best in the world are on the field. I don't care what year it is. And I think that's a good way to look at baseball. You're seeing the world-class players. You can't, you can't find any anybody any better. So uh, it's fun to play the game. What if? But uh, I still pick the I still pick the Dodgers myself. <laughs> exactly, and and I'd I'd have to agree with you. Although what makes it interesting to me, if we are playing the hypotheticals, is the way you said that the you had some you had a couple wild cards in 1955 that weren't there in 1953 from a pitching perspective, and uh, thinking about Darling, Fernandez, uh, um, Gooden, of course. Uh, um, and I'm trying to think of the other two, uh, but but obviously we're not here to talk about the 1986 Mets. It was a hypothetical question that popped into my head, and it's always fun to play those games. Listen, I beat I beat the uh, I beat a uh, Smoky Joe Wood uh, in a computer game, a pitching game. Uh, <laughs> what year was that? 18 what? And so. so <laughs> I'm proud of that one. And that's the only play, and those are the places that now we can put these these uh, these things up uh, for debate and and seeing what happens. Obviously, I think it's hard for video games to to recreate artificially the human elements of of everything. Uh, but it, it, they've really gotten a lot of the science down to a T, and it is impressive nonetheless. Uh, so in, in our last five to ten minutes, uh, and I'll, I'll start with you. Andy, and then you could follow up, Carl. Uh, Billy Lowe's. Uh, I'd like to hone in on specifically Billy Lowe's. What is something you remember about about him, Andy? Well, he, he was known noted to be a flake, uh, and, and that's probably the most famous things about him. There were a couple of incidents that you always see written about. One was with the uh, 
they, they don't want to win 20 games because then they'll expect it every year and stuff like that. I mean, he never won more than 14 games, but he certainly seemed to have the ability. And uh, I, I guess that was just his nature. I mean, obviously Carl knew, knew him. He could talk more about it, but uh, I guess he was that kind of a guy. And uh, uh, even with the, with the ground ball in the World Series when he said he lost it in the sun, actually it probably made sense. <laughs> The sun, you know, coming over the stadium roof probably could have flashed or something. But coming from him, it sounded like a like a like a flaky remark. So that, that's what I remember about him. He was, I think, he was a good pitcher, and uh, I think he could have been a better pitcher if he, whatever it was that stopped him from doing it, whatever gave him that idea that he shouldn't win twenty games or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, well, because Billy Lowe's was a good, a good. He had a great arm. He had a, a live, very live. Uh, they talk about velocity today, and and nobody throws 95, 97, even the, in the hundreds. But the movement on the ball is what makes it tough to hit. Uh, speed, the hitters seem to catch up with speed, unless the ball moves. Well, Billy had a very live fastball, and yes, he was a uh, he was a little strange. I like Billy, uh, but he was one of these guys that let all the superstitions uh, get in his head. And that really was uh, one of his, one of his uh, negatives was that Billy, if things didn't just, if the throw from the catcher didn't go clean, he'd think he'd get scored on. If, if, if somebody, if he stepped on a chalk line, I mean, he had all these crazy things. And when we'd have meetings in the clubhouse, it was up front in Ebbets Field. Well, Ebbets Field had two huge pillars in the clubhouse that held up the, the building, I guess. But anyway, his locker was behind one of these pillars. And uh, the meeting took place on the other side. Well, Billy had a superstition about staying in his locker while he went over the scorecard talking about how he's going to pitch to the hitters. And the, <laughs> so the whole meeting would be up on one side, and you wouldn't even see Billy. He's sitting behind the pillar uh, looking at the scorecard <laughs> talking about because he was superstitious. And, uh, and he, was just, he was just that way. Now, I like Billy, but... And you're right, Andy, about the the ball that got in the sun. There was a time at Ebbets Field, I can vouch for it, when you're on the mound in the late afternoon between the upper and lower deck, the sun, when it was upright, would, for about a minute or so, would be right in that small slot, and it came right to the mound. Well, this ball that was hit was a high bouncer. It wasn't a ground ball, as you say. It was a ground ball by uh, definition, but it was a high-bouncing ground ball. And the high hop came right at the time when this sun was right at the peak in that hole uh, under this, uh, through the stand. And I can see, you know, it was legit. But Lowe's, you know, when he said, I lost it, when they wrote, well, he lost the ground ball in the sun, <laughs> he had to know more about it to know what really happened. <laughs> but they had to tell one day, uh, playing the Yankees in, uh, in, I don't know, in the sixth. He said, how do you think the, how do you think the series is going to go? Pee Wee said, oh, we'll win it in six games. And Duke said, well, we'll win it in seven games. They go to Billy, and he said, well, um, we, if we win it, it'll be in six games. If it goes seven, got to pick the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> but it did go seven, and the Yankees won. So, so Willie, Billy was a different cat. But I respected him for the fact that he, uh, he, he was a good pitcher. And uh, you talk about him winning 14 games. Uh, the 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 season before, um, he had won 13, and negotiating with, with uh, Buzzy Bavese, uh, Willie wanted, I mean, Billy wanted a, a raise, and uh, 
So Buddy said, well, we're off you 13000 That's That's $1,000 a win, Billy. Uh, that's good pay. So Willie, Billy signed the contract. And then we were in St. Louis when Billy won his 13th game. And he goes to Frank Scott, our traveling secretary, and said, give me a ticket back to New York. He said, what are you talking about? We're going to Cincinnati and, and Chicago. No, he said, I'm getting paid to win 13 games. I just won them. Get me a ticket home. <laughs> he actually won 14 games that year, so he hung around. But uh, Billy died uh, out in Arizona a few years ago. I used to call him. I was player representative. I tried to keep in touch with, with the guys. And Billy, the last time I talked to him, was very sad. He said, Carl, I'm on so many pills. I want to throw I want to throw them all down the toilet and die. He said, I'm, I'm done. Well, it was a very sad day when I spoke to Billy the last time. But uh, a good pitcher, uh, a, a, a typical Brooklyn New Yorker. He loved New York. He loved playing in Brooklyn. And uh, he just had a way of seeing things that was just a little different. I think uh, the good segue, you said that he won 14 games that year. And uh, I'll segue over to uh, to finish the show with number 14, Gil Hutt. Um, the, the slump, as as it is infamously known. Uh, I will start with you, Andy, and Carl, you can take it from, uh, from once he's done. Um, talk about the slump leading us to uh, to the the famous uh, St. Francis Xavier church moment. Yeah. Well, uh, he, start, he I think the last week or so of the season, he didn't, he didn't hit in 52. And then he had that World Series. He was about 0 for 21. But it continued into the spring, and he just wasn't hitting. And by by uh, when that incident happened with the with the, the priest, with Father Redmond, was was late May, and I think he was hitting about 180, 184 at the time. And uh, amazing thing about it is that he finished the season with he had one home run. He finished the season with I think 31 home runs and 122 RBIs. So he actually had a fantastic year. But Gill was a very, very uh, popular guy in Brooklyn. Uh, I, I guess uh, in part, I mean, his, certainly his personality. He was everybody, everybody who, who ever had any touch with him said what a nice guy he was. But in part, he married a, a girl from Brooklyn, and he he uh, stayed here. He stayed in Brooklyn the whole season. So he became, uh, you know, a Brooklyn. I, I've talked to people, uh, you know, uh, who would deliver a newspaper or something. Hey, what a nice guy! You know, he was he was part of the community, like the guys were, like Carl and the rest of them were in, in Bay Ridge in the summertime. But I guess that just made him more popular, and 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 everybody was uh, everybody just just liked him. He was just a popular guy. He was a nice guy, and a sad the saddest story because he died so prematurely uh, in his forties with of the heart attack. But Joe Pignatano told me uh, how he was he was coming off the golf course with him when when Gil collapsed, and Joe said his head hit the the concrete and he was bleeding, and he said I had him I was cradled him in my arms, I had blood all over my my shirt and everything, and it was so sad to 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 hear it happening mm-hmm. like that, hear that, but. But uh, a great ball player. I mean, uh, obviously, he's supposed to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, uh, and I, I would just say one thing about that. To me, the Hall of Fame, it's a subjective thing. But if you put if you put player A in, how can you leave player B out? And when it comes to Hodges, i got to say, they put Tony Perez in. Take a look at compared it to them. Both great ball players, And I think they both should be in there. But Hodges may even have a slight edge, and, and he's not in. So that's that's who knows. Well... 
Yeah, you're right. Well, a lot of things flood my memory when I think of Gil. Number one, he was a quiet guy. You knew that. And uh, he was solid at first base. Uh, the thing about Gil's hitting uh, in the slump and, and other times, he had a blind spot, I think, on the outside part of the plate. Well, in the major leagues, the guys can hit that spot, I mean, regularly. And he took so many third strikes that it just would just make you grin because this guy with his big bat and he take a third strike, I think he struck out 100 times one year, and 70-some times of them were taking the third strike. But he kind of had a blind spot. If the pitcher hit it, he would take it. And so that was one of the things that hurt him in his slump. But um, the other thing was the, the manager, Dressen, used to say to Hodges, do you ever get mad? Yell said, well, yeah, inside maybe. And she said, look, I'll give you $100 if you'll get thrown out of a game one time Arguing on a close play at first. Just, I'll pay you 100 bucks if you'll argue enough to get thrown out one time. It never happened. He never got thrown out of the game. And, and in Chicago one time, Tom Gorman was behind the plate, called Gill out on a terrible pitch. He comes back to the bench and just lays his hat down, his helmet down, puts a bat in the rack. And the guy said, Gill, that was a terrible pitch, man. He, next time up, another high strike, calls him out again. When he came back, the guy said, Gil, you're crazy. He's taking a bat out of your hand. You ought to get on this guy, Tom Gorman. Next time you go up there, get on him. Well, Gil was sitting there, and he finally says, okay, okay, you guys, get off my back. And next time I go up to, to see Gorman, I'll, uh, I won't even ask him how his wife and kids are. <laughs> that, was, that was his idea of getting on the umpire. <laughs> so he was a very passive guy. Now, aside from that, when he became a manager, most of us said, we don't know how Gil will do that because he he never gets flustered. I mean, he never raises his voice, and uh, he never gets upset. Even when the Thompson hit the home run uh, in the 51, I was one of the first into the clubhouse because I was in the bullpen along with Labine and uh, Sukaforth. And uh, I got in there. When Hodges came in, I watched everybody come in, and Hodges walked to his locker folded his glove, stuck it very slowly, easily up in his, uh, up in the uh, shelf in his locker. Jackie came in. He kicked the locker, threw his glove against the metal locker, made a big boom. Dressing ripped his shirt off, all the buttons off of it. Hodges was passive. But now you talk to the guys that played for Hodges with the Mets, and Tom Seaver will tell you, he'd take a look at you, and it'd burn your shorts off. He, he could... <laughs> He was tough. Gill inside was tough, but he was contained. He didn't throw the stools in the clubhouse. He didn't rant and rave as a manager. He didn't jump on guys. Uh, But uh, Tom Seavers told me that, listen, Hodges was tough. He was fair, very fair, but he was smart. You know, the incident with the shoe polish on the ball. (laughs) Hodges never missed a chance. He was smart. He was a sign stealer, and uh, and he and he does deserve in the Hall of Fame. But Hodges was not um, he, he wasn't a guy that had charisma uh, for the press. I mean, he was so solid. Another thing about Hodges, I can vouch for this: he never got booed at Evans Field. Now, I don't think there's another player, including myself, that played at Evans Field that at some point. I'm not sure about Pee Wee, but I. I think everybody that ever played there, sooner or later, had enough 
bad games or stretches that he got booed, but not Hodges. He never got booed at Ebbets Field. One last thing about Hodges. He and I were both from Indiana, and Gladys Gooding was our organist. Every day she played the national anthem, but every time I'd come in to pitch or Hodges hit a home run, she played back home in Indiana. (laughs) I think that song was played the second most song in the 40s and 50s, and Ebbets Field was back home in Indiana. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that's, it, it's it's beautiful to hear you guys uh, speak of, of Gil and you know I wish that he had uh, survived long enough to for me to know him uh, and, and you know be, me being a Mets fan he, he's obviously ingrained in that history as well well guys we're going to get cut off shortly uh, but well, uh, one thing still, one quick thing about the Hall yeah. of Fame they will not consider Hodges as a manager and player he usually has to make it as a as a manager or make it as a player I think that's an oversight. I think Agreed. the Hall of Fame should look at who contributed the most to the game. And, and if you add Gil Hodges managing to uh, Tony Perez's comparison to being a Hall of Fame, Hodges would be in there overwhelmingly because he contributed as a manager and exactly. as a player. And exactly. I think the Hall of Fame needs to, need to change that parameter. And I, I, agree. I, think there's, I think there's a lot of things the Hall of Fame definitely needs to change. Uh, well, we, we, one, are, we are going to get we are going to get cut off in a, in a second, but I just wanted to say thank you guys so very much, Andy. Thank you. 